It's Friday, March 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Could stimulus checks for gas be headed your way soon? Consumers could see increased costs of $2,000 this year due to gas prices. Three different plans have been proposed on the federal level to help ease the pain of high prices. But while lawmakers are trying to hand out more money, there are concerns it could make inflation worse. Amy Peakey, reporter at CBS Money Watch, joins us for what's in these plans. Next, President Biden is in Europe meeting with NATO and European allies to discuss next steps with Russia and how to help Ukraine. In response to the refugee crisis, Biden said that the U.S. will welcome up to 100,000 Ukrainians and is looking for ways to expedite the process. Steph Kite, politics and immigration reporter at Axios, joins us for how the refugee process could work. Finally, Hollywood loves its sequels, so much so that they barely even bothered to change the name. Take the latest Scream or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Often new movies in the same franchise just add or subtract the, or it remains exactly the same. Filmmakers say it's not being lazy, rather, it pays homage to the original and gets a new generation interested in a franchise. Chris Cornelis, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So today we're announcing a $9 billion tax refund to tens of millions of Californians. $400 for each registered vehicle that an individual owns, up to two vehicles. That direct relief will address the issue that we all are struggling to address, and that's the issue of gas prices. Joining us now is Amy Peakey, reporter at CBS Money Watch. Thanks for joining us, Amy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, inflation is on everybody's minds. High gas prices is on everybody's minds. It's uh, getting uh, kind of out of hand. I live in California, I say on the podcast all the time. So, you know, in Los Angeles where I'm at, the prices are crazy. I think it was like six fifty that I put in a gallon the other day. So, as I mentioned, just on everybody's minds, so much so that lawmakers are starting to look for some type of solutions. And we have a few different proposals where there would be kind of like a stimulus payment or some type of rebate that they're proposing to give people back just to help them through with these high gas prices. So, Amy, help us walk through some of, uh, first of all, what's going on and and then the sentiment behind all this. So there are three different federal proposals. So the idea is that, you know, if one of these passes, it would help anybody who's a resident in the U.S. with higher gas bills right now. And the idea is that um, you would get a check from the federal government that would offset some of those higher costs that you're experiencing. And that is taking a chunk out of a lot of people's budgets right now. They kind of operate in different ways, though. Like one, for instance, would send up to $300 per family every month that your gas price, the national average gas price is above $4 a gallon. And right now it is above $4 a gallon. So if this were in effect, every family of four people would get $300 a month. That would certainly help a lot of people. It's unclear though how that would be paid for. The bill hasn't, the text of the bill hasn't yet been published. And uh, the statement didn't really include details. I'm like, well, where would that yeah. revenue come from to pay, pay for that? You know, we talk about uh, inflation too, right? You know, a lot of economists and people are saying that one of the reasons why we have such high inflation is because of all the stimulus money that was paid out throughout the pandemic. You know, a lot of people do have this excess buildup of cash. So, you know, who's to know if this would exacerbate that problem too? 
This is something kind of a broader discussion that's happening right now at the state level as well, because there are different states that are proposing rebates. California is one of them where they would send money and and are planning to send money um, to residents of the state. And, you know, some some um, tax experts are saying, well, that's great. But, you know, that could only add to the problem because you're giving residents, you know, hundreds of dollars more to spend. And this is kind of what's fueling inflation in the first place, you have a huge amount of demand. Um, And as we all know, supply has been constrained for a lot of things because of the supply chain issues we've had. So those two things are kind of causing inflation. And yeah, a lot of, as you say, a lot of economists point to the stimulus checks we got, the child tax credit as helping families, but you know, that feeds into this problem. So I, I think that's something to think about. One of the other conversations regarding that part of it too is taking away gas taxes. So there might be something like that in California's proposal. I think in other states, they're temporarily cutting gas taxes. Uh, Is that type of plan anything in in these federal plans? Yeah, so far on the federal level, there's been no sign of movement on getting rid of the federal tax on gas. Um, But yeah, you're right. Several states are doing that. Connecticut is one. um, Georgia is another. And I mean, that that adds up. You know, if you look at like Connecticut, it's about 25 cents a gallon. That's a tax is put on residents of that state. Georgia is 29 cents. So, you know, that helps a lot if you can take that tax off. I'm not sure that that would happen at the federal level, but you could see that happen in more states. You know, one thing that's really interesting, too, that why we're seeing this happening at the state level and these rebate checks at the state level in California is states are in a really good position right now. They actually have a huge amount of tax revenue. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody expected that states would end up really suffering, you know, because the economy shut down. But then when things rebounded, people went back to work and Americans started spending again. States actually have ended up with these like record level of um, budget surpluses. So that's why they're giving back money and cutting taxes. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing that we're seeing right now. And it definitely helps consumers. You know, it's just it's a balancing act, I think, between those two things, putting more money into consumers' hands and helping them, but also like being aware of inflation and how that impacts the prices and, and demand in your area. Yeah. All these plans have been formed by Democrats. So I'm just interesting, interested to hear how much support there might be from this on the other side of the aisle. I know it's a, a huge issue for everybody, but is there support for these plans? I think one thing that's interesting to look at is it, when you look at the state level, we're seeing these these rebate checks, which are designed for to help people with inflation, gas prices, food prices, is coming from both sides of the aisle. So, I mean, I think this is something that lawmakers, um, regardless of the party, are concerned about. And one thing I wanted to point out about two of these federal proposals for rebates to help families with tax with um, gas prices is that they would pay for the plan by taxing oil and gas companies. That I don't think is something that you'd likely see support for from the Republicans. So, I mean, they're coming, these are coming from Democrats and they're saying, look, oil and gas companies had a record amount of profit last year. Let's make sure some of that's going back to consumers. So, you know, that might be hard to get through, um, given that's probably not going to get support on the other side. Amy Peaky, reporter at CBS Money Watch. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is not something that Poland or Romania or Germany should carry on their own. 
This is an international responsibility. The United States is the leader, one of the leaders in the international community, has an obligation to be engaged. Joining us now is Steph Kite, politics and immigration reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. Well, President Biden is in Europe right now meeting with NATO, the Group of Seven, uh, the 27-member European Council. There's a lot of stuff going along with regards to how the West is going to be reacting to Russia as the invasion of Ukraine continues. I think we're like at a month long already. But some of the interesting things that we learn from President Biden is uh, this whole thing regarding the refugee crisis. So the UN has said that 10 million Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes. Not everybody has left. I think 3.7 million is the current number, has fled the country, mostly to Poland, but into other nearby countries. And there's been pressure on the U.S. to do more with refugees. So I guess we're going to be welcoming at least up to 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. What do we know about all this, Steph? Right. So this is the first real specific commitment that we've heard from the Biden administration when it comes to refugees that they plan to bring into the U.S. They've obviously been supporting NGOs and groups on the ground closer to Ukraine who have been you know, helping people who have fled from Ukraine. But this is the first time that the administration has said, yeah, we are making plans to welcome up to 100,000 Ukrainians or others, maybe not Ukrainians, but other people who are fleeing um, as Russia invades the country. This can happen through several different pathways, is our understanding. We don't know exactly how the administration plans to do this. We know that they will use the established refugee process as one mechanism, but they've also said that they're looking at other ways to more quickly bring people into the U.S. Now, how will this work? Are, are, do the Ukrainians have to make their way here to the United States first or their programs to pick them up from other countries? I know a lot of this, uh, they're trying to expedite the process with people that have family members here in the United States. But obviously, you know, Ukraine is so far away. It's easier for them to go to near uh, neighboring countries. What's the process of getting them here to the U.S.? There are going to be a lot of Ukrainians who may choose to stay closer to home, who might want to choose to stay in European nations, um, countries that are just closer to Ukraine. When it comes to the process of how Ukrainians will actually get to the U.S., that's where we still have some questions. We haven't gotten the full details from the administration. Usually what happens when you look at refugee resettlement processes and how they usually go is that people are forced to flee their home countries, then they are referred to the U.S. for resettlement, either by the U.N. refugee group or other NGOs who say, you know, this person is really in a dire situation and they should be resettled in the U.S. Then there's a vetting process and the U.S. helps work with NGOs to bring them to the U.S. So that would be the typical process. But it's important to note that normally that process can take a very long time, which is why we're seeing the administration kind of hint at trying to look at other experts plans. What are we seeing with the other refugee crisis that we had not too long ago with Afghanistan, where the Taliban moved in and then we had to evacuate a bunch of people? I guess the U.S. brought 76,000 Afghan uh, evacuees over to the country using one of these processes that we're talking about. I've just read that there's still backlogs of people, you know, with regards to that. So mm-hmm. the system is always overtaxed, but it just seems like it's even more now. You're right that the system is always overtaxed. 
And, you know, I've spoken to groups who work with refugees and groups who are working and, you know, humanitarian aid around the world. And all of those groups really are overtaxed. And, you know, you raise a good point that we have only recently had to deal with the mass evacuation of Afghans. And we brought in, as you pointed out, 76,000 Afghans to the U.S. and helped start getting them resettled in the U.S. And we used um, a mechanism called humanitarian parole to do that, which enabled DHS to very quickly bring people in on a temporary legal basis, which then will lead to some kind of more permanent legal status. But one of the issues was just, you know, using that for Ukrainians as something that we're hearing that the administration is considering is that there is, as you pointed out, a backlog in those applications. What else did we hear from President Biden? As I mentioned, he's there in Europe. He's uh, doing a series of different types of meetings going on. He pledged more aid to uh, Ukraine. And, and, and you mentioned as well, some of the nearby countries, uh, I think up to a billion dollars. What else are we hearing from the president out there? Right, exactly. So the Biden administration also announced that the U.S. would provide $1 billion in humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. So providing food and water and medical supplies. Um, and they've also launched a new initiative, initiative to tighten sanctions enforcement, um, as well as working with their countries who are harmed by sanctions, making sure that there are ways to get around that. And Biden also said that he would support Russia being expelled from the G20 because of its invasion of Ukraine. Um, that would be something that would you know, further isolate Vladimir Putin on the international stage. So we are seeing the administration really come out with several things that they're trying to show the world that this is something that they take very seriously and that they're going to take action on. Steph Kite, politics and immigration reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And so they say, we're just going to we're just going to call it scream or uh, Halloween or shaft. And so people don't feel like they have to go back and uh, consume the earlier movies. Joining us now is Chris Cornelis, contributor to The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to talk about a fun uh, article you wrote about uh, Hollywood does love their sequels. We make them all the time. But uh, right now we're getting into the kind of this peak sequel uh, arena where we're not even changing the names of the movies very much. Uh, you, you went through quite a, a listing of names talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Scream, uh, Suicide Squad. All of these where the name is basically the exact same. Maybe you subtract the from the title, but other than that, they, they remain very much the same. And, uh, you know, for, for some of these filmmakers and everything, they, they say it's about possibly reaching a younger audience, uh, getting them reintroduced to a franchise they might not be familiar with. So tell us a little bit more about it, Chris. Yeah, my favorite is Halloween. There are actually three movies in the Halloween franchise called simply Halloween. And that's a pretty good one to start with. And it's, you know, there's the original in 1978 called Halloween, which we all know, Jamie Lee Curtis. And there, there have been many sequels since then and remakes. Too. So the movie was remade not too long ago uh, and just called Halloween. But what they did in 2018 was they called this movie simply Halloween. And it's sort of a, a they're doing a number of different things here. They're kind of rebooting the franchise, launching another trilogy and having to be a sequel at the same time. So they still have Jamie Lee Curtis. They have the same picks up right where the original left off. But it's all but it's new filmmakers involved, and it's a new way of saying, okay, we're just going to try this again. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre has kind of done the same thing, where they've had the original, they've had remakes, they've had sequels, they've had Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, and then they're like, 
well, let's just see what happens. We'll, 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 just, we'll make it a sequel, you know, where some of the original characters picking up the, the storyline, but we'll just see what happens. So, you, you know, some of these, it's, it's a sequel, and they say, well, we'll also kind of try to reboot the franchise here, too, which some people call requels. So Scream, right? Scream 2, Scream 3. The newest one was actually Scream 5, but they dropped all the numbers. They dropped everything and just called it Scream again. One of the people you spoke to said, oh, you know, it, it kind of sounds a little cheap now, just adding a number to certain things. Right. That's what Jason Blum from Blumhouse, who really kind of kicked this off with Halloween in 2018, made that comment that, yeah, at some point it just starts feeling a little bit cheap. And it's a long, it's a long way from Rocky Four, Rocky Five, And, you know, what a couple of people said to me, too, was it is so hard to get people to leave their couch and go to the movie theater. They want as few barriers as possible. So if you're looking at a movie that's going to be in the theater, it's called Scream 5, and you haven't seen 1, 2, 3, and 4, you might be like, well, you know, I'm kind of interested, but I, you know, I haven't, I, I haven't watched the first four yet, so you know, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't go see this. What they're saying is like, they don't want that to be a barrier anymore. And so they say, we're just going to call it Scream or uh, Halloween or Shaft. And so people don't feel like they have to go back and uh, consume the earlier movies. Yeah. And, you know, for some of these movies, right, like let's say a Scream franchise, right, that hasn't necessarily been rebooted. It's just kind of continued that story three and four and five. Right. You you miss some of the backstory, some of the key characters that might have been in the past. Others like these complete reboots, like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something, maybe a little more easier, a, li- a little bit less of a barrier to entry on that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's if you, if you watch the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you haven't seen the original, obviously there's things that you're not going to, that, that you might not get, but they're all done in a way where really, you know, these new ones that we're talking about, you can drop in and you can watch it because again, the filmmakers do not want people to come to this movie and not know where they are, not not know what's going on. And again, it's also about relaunching this. So they don't, they're not written in a, in a way too, where people have had to do a lot of homework that they can start here if they want to. And then if they care to, they can go back and revisit the earlier movies in the franchise. Is there no end in sight to just kind of rebooting franchises, making sequels constantly? There is no end in sight. And I talked to Michael Eisner about this, who is the chairman, former chairman and CEO of Disney. And really, he presided over just these really, you know, starting some of these franchises that were being continued to be remade today, you know, such as The Lion King. And he said to me, he, he said, look, this really is kind of much ado about nothing, the name thing. His, his point was, he's like, all I care about is creativity. So he's like, look, if it's an original, it, it might be under the banner of an existing franchise. But if, it's, if the story's good, if the story's original, if it's executed well, he's like, what's the problem? And that's what a number of these filmmakers said to me, too. Like Jason Blum from Blumhouse, who has done these, these Halloween movies, is that he thinks about these franchises as like a sleeve. And he's like, look, we can do these really interesting things or what they think are. And people can write these exciting stories. But they do it in the, inside the sleeve of this existing franchise. So, again, it's partly... it's so difficult to get people to come to the movie theater. Having an existing piece of IP, a bankable franchise, it helps. It's certainly not a guarantee, but it helps and it familiarizes and we're absolutely should not expect it to go away anytime soon. And they're having so much, the thing is they're having a lot of success with this. The Batman and Spider-Man, these are wildly successful. I mean, people are not, people go to these are not complaining that there's another movie called Batman out, even though it's the Batman this time and Michael (laughs) Keaton was in Batman. Right. Chris Cornelis, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.